All right, well, we're, we're starting quite late today, and I'm not sure how far we're going to get into the study, but Matthew uh, right here is handing out an additional handout. This is in addition to your notes, so please take one. Uh, you've got notes for today's class, but also this handout. The handout that he uh, is, uh, is distributing is an article that was written by John Payne, who's a fellow PCA minister, and John has written an article in, in this month's copy of Table Talk magazine on the ordinary means of grace. And it's just a really good little encouragement uh, on the ordinary means of grace ministry in the church. So uh, I encourage you to take it. Some of you, I know, subscribe to Table Talk magazine, so you may have already read it. Uh, but it's an article worth reading more than once. Um, so, uh, and if you don't subscribe to Table Talk magazine, um, why not? Uh, I, I wish every church member uh, subscribed to Table Talk magazine. In fact, I was reminded this week, in, in one week, I encountered two different situations that were problems in, with, with people uh, that related to theological error. And, and, I, and I got to the end of the week and I thought, this is, un, this is uncanny that I would encounter this twice in one week as a, as a pastor uh, of this church. Uh, but it's just reminded me uh, that we've got to be consistently learn, teaching and learning and studying uh, orthodox doctrine. Uh, because otherwise, uh, we'll see quite quickly how... Uh, people can be led astray and move into error. I witnessed it twice this last week. So, all right, so today uh, we are looking at our continued study of the ordinary means of grace. And at the top of your handout, uh, you'll see that I have put the shorter catechism question and answer that, yes. Okay. So if, you, if you're a couple and both of you got a copy of that, if you'll just be uh, uh, gracious enough to hand that to a neighbor who didn't get a copy of that article. Again, you will not need the article for this class. This is just supplementary, um, but uh, I think that it's good enough that everybody ought to at least have a, a one per, per couple. All right. Okay, so what does the Shorter Catechism say about the outward and ordinary means of grace whereby Christ communicated to us the benefits of redemption? Well, I think you know this by now. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicated to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the Word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Now, you may recall that the last two weeks we have looked at the topic of the church. And, and quite candidly, um, I, I am trying my best to consolidate this study. Um, were that not the case, I really would have taken another month just to teach on, on the church because I think that we live in an age where there is such a deficient understanding of the church uh, that I, I really wish I could have just stayed there for a while. But if you did not get the opportunity to attend uh, either of those classes, I, I want to strongly encourage you to go back and watch the videos or listen to the audios of those uh, two classes. I think that they are essential 
to the understanding of the ordinary means of grace. And the nutshell is this, is there is no ordinary means of grace. I'm not using hyperbole. I mean no with two capital letters. No ordinary means of grace ministry apart from the church. Period, exclamation point. The church is that important. And in an age uh, where evangelicalism has seemed to fan the flame of individualism, um, we need to restore a right understanding of the necessity of the church. And that is no more apparent than in the ordinary means of grace ministry. So here we go. We're starting today uh, on this topic, on the topic of the Word of God. The Word of God, Scripture, uh, the Bible, etc., etc., uh, and I want to begin with this question uh, in, in terms of defining what the Word of God is. And the question is, is why is the Word of God necessary? Why is the Word of God necessary? I mean, for example, someone might say, in error, someone might say, Oh, you uh, traditional Presbyterians, you believe in predestination. And so because you believe in predestination, what's anything else matter? If it's only the elect who are going to heaven, well, why do you even need a Bible? Why do you share the gospel? Why do you believe that someone must make a profession of faith? And on and on and on the falsehood goes. And one of the areas that we need to be very clear on is that there is the necessity of the Scriptures. Why? Why is the Word of God necessary? Well, 1640s, when the Westminster Assembly uh, assembled and the English and Scottish divines met and began to wrestle with how to rightly understand what the Word of God says and how to convey that in doctrinal form, it is fascinating to me that of all of the topics of Scripture and all of the topics of doctrine that they could have begun with, they chose the beginning, the Word. And so on your handout, I have for you uh, drawing from, or rather quoting from, Westminster Confession, chapter 1.1. Right at the beginning, here's what they say. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation? Now, that is a strong statement about the necessity of Scripture. But let's first begin to understand what they are actually saying about general revelation. What is the light of nature and the works of creation and providence, what are they sufficient to do? Or maybe we should back up and just understand what does that statement mean? What does it mean, the light of nature, the works of creation, and providence? What are they referring to there? Yeah, so we could, we could draw from Psalm 19. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, so forth and, and, and so on. Uh, so it could be a reference to that, and I will tell you it actually is because they footnote Psalm 19 uh, in uh, in describing or in in, in uh, defining this. But what else? What is the light of nature and the works of creation and providence? Uh, 
That's right. That's exactly right. So, so Chris used a, a good theological term that we all ought to understand. And, and that term is general revelation. General revelation, in essence, says that God is revealed in creation. He is revealed in creation. And in fact, they narrow down here in this beautiful use of succinct uh, economic language by, by adding to that the works of creation, meaning that when we look out to creation and we see that uh, we see it for what it is, we look at it and we go, there is a God. This is, this is why, incidentally, uh, why in the Proverbs and the Psalms it says that who says there is no God? The fool, right? The dummy, the idiot. You, you, you have got to be a moron to look out and go, nope, not buying it, there's no God. That's essentially what Scripture says. And so to that they add the works of creation and providence. Now, I'm not going to quote it, but the Shorter Catechism does define the works of creation and providence. But in essence, in non-Shorter Catechism language, what is the providence of God? Okay, that's a, that would be a good one. Actually, I've never heard that, but that's a, a good way to put it. The sovereignty of God worked out in time. Maybe we could add to that, and space, in time and space. How else, what would we add to that? Well, we could, we could draw from the, 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 uh, the Word and say that is God caring for His creation? God providing for His creation? Uh, God sovereignly administering that which is best for His creation? So forth and so on. And so what they're saying here is, is that when you look out to, to creation, what we see is, well, goodness. We see wisdom. We see the power of God, and as Chris referenced, so also in seeing this, it leaves every human being unexcusable. He referenced, but I believe I've got it in your handout, uh, Romans 1, 19 and 20. Do I have that on your handout? Okay, all right. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Who's them? Human beings. Right? All right. So, what, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. And so, what, what Paul is saying there is there is sufficient. Not, there is sufficient revelation in creation, and, and the divines add to that providence, <clears throat> that uh, those who see then must. The heart must acknowledge there is a God. Westminster Larger Catechism, question number two, then elaborates on this. And I think this is a very helpful elaboration. Larger Catechism, question two, asks, How doth it appear that there is a God? In other words, is, okay, let's ask and let's define, how do you know there's a God? Well, the answer is, the very light of nature in man. Well, that's interesting. As man is made in the image of God, male and female, he created them, right? Genesis chapter 1, uh, 28 and 29 
Is that right, 28 and 29, or is it 26 and 27? Genesis 1. There you go. The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God, but His Word and Spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal Him unto men for their salvation. And I love that catechism answer because what it does is it doesn't just answer the question, but it also tells you the logical flow from that. If creation is sufficient to leave us without excuse, how then may we who are fallen in sin in Adam, how may we be saved? Well, it's not through creation. No one ever looks to creation and is able to find true and lasting salvation in Christ. But it does render them as unexcusable. Uh, Robert Letham, uh, a current living Presbyterian theologian, writes, while God's general revelation is utterly infallible, and I love the way that he introduces that, because oftentimes we, we think about the Word of God and we'll use the term infallible, but, but Letham says, now let's understand just how magnificent creation is. It is, he says, utterly infallible. That, that's a great introduction. But he goes on to say, but after the fall, it is impossible, and that's key, after the fall, it is impossible to attain salvation through it, through creation, no matter how diligently one may follow its leading, for that is not its purpose. And I love that little part, because what he's saying is, is that there is a purpose to general revelation, but its purpose is not to preach the gospel. It is to glorify God indeed, and is to reveal who that He is and that He exists, but there must be a revelation. There must be, and this is the second term that I'm going to want you to, to remember, there must be a special revelation. We're going to talk about this in, in greater depth in the, in the coming weeks, but I want to introduce that term to you today. You're going to want to, uh, to remember that. Larger Catechism number 60 asks this question, Can they who have never heard the gospel and so know not Jesus Christ nor believe in Him be saved by their living according to the light of nature? So let's understand the question. So what they're asking is, is if there is someone in the world, and there is someone in the world, right? If there is someone in the world who has never heard the gospel, can they look out at God's utterly infallible creation? Can they look at creation and can they be saved through it? Here's how they answer that question. They who having never heard the gospel, know not Jesus Christ, and believe in Him, cannot be saved. But they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature, or the laws of that religion which they profess. Neither is there salvation in any other, but in Christ alone, who is the Savior only of His body and church." 
And, and as you would expect, the, the carefully articulated answer uh, there is helpful in saying, hey, don't throw creation under the bus. It is glorious. And it does, in, in fact, reveal, as the psalmist declares in Psalm 19, the glory of God, undoubtedly. And it also uh, conveys truth about God that even those who do not know the gospel may glean and benefit from the wisdom and the goodness. We might even add to that the order of, of creation. All of this is beneficial from a common grace perspective for human beings. But creation does not redeem. So then, what is the light of nature and the works of creation and providence then insufficient to do? Well, the, large, the, the confession goes on to say, to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto creation. But, but, God has not left us without His special revelation. God has not left us without His special revelation. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, we impart this in words, not, and he's talking there about the gospel, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And what Paul is getting at there is that God has, in fact, sovereignly acted. And by His Holy Spirit, He has, in fact, given us His special revelation. He has, in fact, given us His Word. He does this through and by His Holy Spirit. And again, we're going to talk about that in greater depth in terms of the human confusion about the writings and works of man versus the Spirit-given Word. But today, I'm, I'm just doing a general flyover to help us to understand the distinction between general and special revelation. And so the point I'm trying to get across is, is that it is absolutely necessary that God reveal Himself and that He declare, and I'm quoting now from the Confession, that He declare that... His will unto His church. Karl Barth argues that it is impossible for humans to reach up to God and to discover Him or His plans. It's impossible for man, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, through the revelation of God's Word, to, to somehow discern, to somehow grapple with, to somehow pull down from heaven that which... <clears throat> is only given by God's sovereign act through His Spirit. The point I'm trying to get at is this, is that special revelation is absolutely necessary. It is absolutely necessary. And so, you might say, okay, I've written that word down on my notes now. Well, now let's, let's be a little more specific. What does God reveal specifically? What does God reveal specifically? And I've, I've used this, uh, I've said this before in this class, um, but for example, um, and I'll, I'll pick on civil engineering since we have civil engineers here. Yeah. <laughs> I can't see him now. He's, got, he's climbed underneath the table. You know, where's the other civil engineer? When I know we need, we need at least two in here for this to work. Um, 
does the Bible reveal to us how to build a bridge? I'm so fascinated with bridge building. You know, you just, you just wonder, how does, how does something start from both sides and work on the end? And how does it not go up to the middle and get over to the other side? And how does all of this work? And what happens with, to the engineer when you get halfway through the bridge building and go, oops, should have looked at the Bible. Because, you know, the Bible has the plans for bridge building, right? I know. And, you know, as soon as I, I was giving you a hard time, I look over and I go, well, we got a structural engineer here too. And uh, so this could get really, uh, you know, uh, really deep, really quickly. Yeah, but we're not asking for any calculations, James. My favorite is, i got to tell this, James. My favorite is, is that I'd come into a, a Bible study and I'd talked about where I'd had in my, my car, I'd had my coffee cup teetering on the front dash of the car. And I'd had it positioned against the windshield and half of the bottom of the cup was, was on the lip and the other half was dangling precariously off. But for the most part, it stayed in position, especially when I needed to run into the cleaners. And so I went, ran in, came out, everything was great with the hot coffee, no problems, until I accelerated forward, and the coffee cup tipped. And at the Bible study, James brings me a drawing that explains to me how this works. He says, you know, and I can't do it as eloquently as he did, but he began to describe to me how a cup teeters and how gravity works. And, and I even think that we talked about the movement of the car. And it was really fascinating, and I felt like an idiot. Um, but uh, not as much, though, when the coffee spilled all over me. Um, but, uh, but the Bible does not contain how to build a bridge or how not to spill coffee all over yourself in your car. What does the Bible reveal specifically? The answer, according to the confession drawing from the testimony of Scripture, is Scripture reveals God Himself and His will. Scripture reveals God Himself and the will of God. And if you think about this, is how are we to understand? I mean, it's for example, it's a, it's a, it's a woman who very aggravated at the Christian faith and, and at one time very aggregate, aggravated with our, our church. And, uh, and, and she said to me, uh, uh, if there is a God, she is not very nice. And, um, you know, and, 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 and while that bothered me, I thought, well, you just said just loads of truth about your knowledge of God. And it was intentional. I mean, she was trying to be offensive or to, to poke me a little bit, but I just thought, well, you know, you're just revealing your unregenerate heart to me because Scripture's very clear. And we also go to Scripture to know about God. Here's the thing that we must be careful about, and here's the thing that we must share with the world around us. We do not define God. We don't define God's ways. We don't define God's will. Nor do we have the prerogative to detour or to deviate from Scripture. In fact, we need to make sure, and this is one of the reasons why we need to consistently be in the Word of God, we need to make sure that we're not letting the world cloud our judgment and lead us to think about God in an unscriptural way. God reveals Himself in Scripture. God reveals His will in Scripture. Robert Letham says, At each stage of covenant history, 
God reveals His name alongside His covenanting. And I thought that was a beautiful way uh, to, to reiterate what the confession is saying is, is that as we look through Scripture, we see, for, for example, uh, we, we see Moses on the mountain and the burning bush and, and God reveals Himself to Moses. And of course, through uh, Moses as the prophet, He recorded it and then it's passed down to us. And so now we see how God revealed Himself to Moses a- as well. And, and God, we walk through Scripture and see that over over and over again. And so that leads me to the question, how has God revealed Himself and declared His will? In other words, is if this is the what of Scripture, then we should ask the how, right? And I know it's a leading question, uh, so those skilled in logic don't beat me up too much here. But the point is, is that we know that it comes from, well... Scripture, but here's the way the confession puts it. The confession says in chapter 1.1 again, and I'm, I'm on uh, C num- numeral 1 on your handout. It says, Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church. Now, what are they referring to there? What are, what are the, what's the Westminster Assembly referring to when they describe that? Why didn't they just say, well, you know, that Bible that you have in your hand? Why do they describe it this way? Well, think about it this way. How did we receive Scripture? Was Adam given Genesis through Revelation in the garden? Was Moses? Was Elijah? Was John the Baptist? Was the Apostle John? Well, we might be getting close there, right? (laughs) If we think back in terms of biblical history, what we see is that God has chosen to progressively reveal His will through His Word according to His mere good pleasure, We don't get to decide His timing. His timing is perfect. And He has revealed it in various ways. We think about this, for example, according to to Jesus, uh, who wrote the first books of our Old Testament? I'm just going to stay quiet until somebody answers that. Because like 40 of you know the answer, if not all of you. Yeah, Moses. Moses, Moses wrote, Jesus referred to uh, the Pentateuch as the books of Moses. So some of that is just by tradition uh, and by classification. But, but Moses was the general writer of those beginning books. And, and God continued to, to work. If you think about, for example, uh, moving from the, the Pentateuch and moving into the books of wisdom, we think about, and we just did a study on Proverbs, right? And I think many people were surprised to find out, hey, Solomon didn't write all the Proverbs. Hey, David didn't write all the Psalms. Hey, who wrote that book of Song of Solomon? That's a crazy one. How about Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher, Koaleth? as he calls himself, and so forth. And as we look and we move into the wisdom books, and then we move into the prophets, and then we move into the New Testament, we move from the Gospels to the Epistles uh, to the Apocalypse at the conclusion, all of these God has given according to His timing and according to His purpose. 
And that's why the writer of Hebrews begins his letter this way. He says, Long ago, and in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And that's a beautiful expression of how God has worked in delivering special revelation to us. This is how God has worked through the prophets. We see the culmination of that in Christ. It is not without accident that we have what's called a closed canon, and we'll get to the canon in greater detail to come, but it is not surprising that we have a closed and complete canon of Scripture, Genesis through Malachi, Matthew through Revelation, following Christ's ascension and the movement of the New Testament church and the compilation thereof of the Scriptures. The Westminster Confession, point one, and I'm now on on part two of C, goes on to say, and afterwards, in other words, after that part that's referred to in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, after that, for the better preserving, these are key words by the way, double P, preserving and propagating. We'll come back to that of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing, which make the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Now think about this just a second. We'll go back to the double P. Um, Why preserving? Why, why, why preserving? Why would they use that, that word to help quantify what we understand to be the Holy Bible? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that it, is, it is something that we go to. We, we go to the Word of God, and there it is. It's been preserved for us, and it's, it's been handed down for years and years. I mean, this is really quite remarkable, and, and I, I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit trail, but if you have ever studied the manuscripts, and the manuscriptal, uh, manuscribal, is that the word? Manuscribal, manuscriptal evidence of our Scripture, it is extraordinary. The blessing that we have in a compilation, a canon of Scripture. And so God chose to commit His revealed will, His special revelation in writing, and then also propagation. Why propagation? What does what's the word propagation mean? Not something we probably used last week, right? To propagate, in, in essence, is is to share, uh, and it's 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 you know, more deep than that. But I mean, it could involve teaching, it could be transfer, it could be sharing. But the general idea is that you have something that you can then pass along to somebody else. Now, neat little nugget here. We have this right here, which we instantly all take for granted, and I'm actually not talking about this Bible. Um, I'm actually talking about this binding that I'm holding. Um, Does anybody know uh, the other word that you could use for a book of this nature? I mean, let's imagine that it's... um, uh, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Still in the same format. Anybody? So, so another word that's used is, and I had a piece of chalk once upon a time. 
is the word codex. Has anyone heard that before, I would imagine? A codex is a book, in essence. And do you know where we got the codex? Do you know where the, the, the book that all of us have grown up reading and studying and we had classes and my granddaughters are now, they're taking books and I love it and they're going through these codexes. Papa's going to teach them that word one of these days and they're going to love it. That was a joke. This came from the transport, the propagation of the New Testament prior to the compilation of the Gospels and prior to the compilation of what we now understand to be the New Testament, no codexes existed. But within the Roman Empire, there was a need to be able to, to distribute writings. And early on, that was a compilation of the Gospels. Mark was probably the first Gospel that was written, and Luke probably but possibly John was the last one written. Nevertheless, they would be compiled, and you can see just how convenient this is. So now I have a copy of the Gospels, or I have the New Testament, or later what came to be, at least by a couple of centuries, uh, a couple of uh, centuries, that's right, in, we had codexes that contained the entire Bible, which is really remarkable to think about. All of this came by the providence of God in His preserving and propagating the truth for a more sure establishment and comfort of the truth against the corruption of the flesh, so forth and so on. Paul said this in Romans chapter 15, and we're, we're almost uh, finished here. Uh, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And if you think about that, it's really a beautiful thing to think about in the age in which we live. We are the recipients of a complete canon of Scripture. And, and, and I get really excited on this topic. I mean, I can nerd out in like 2.5 seconds on this, this topic, probably 1. Second, 1.0 seconds on this. I love this topic because I think we take this for granted I really do. I think that we take it for granted that when someone says, "Hey, have you read Elijah 50? I mean, uh, Isaiah 53, and and looked at the testimony of the Messiah in that?" We don't have to go. Well, where would you find one of those as eyes? Right? We can say, "Ah, thank you. I'll I'll, I'll check that out. I look forward to, to reading that." This is a beautiful thing that we have to be able to hold Scripture. And the other thing that is a beautiful thing, and, and, and now I'm just getting on my soapbox, is that we also have a rich tradition after the Reformation of good, solid translations. Our doctrine, our doctrine going back, for example, uh, the Sh Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, uh, which most conservative evangelicals hold to, uh, says that the Word of God is inerrant in the original manuscripts. Or they actually use the word autographs, in the original autographs. We don't have the original autographs today, but what we have is a rich tradition of manuscripts that we can draw from. And this modern translation, uh, for example, the ESV, which is not perfect, but it's, it's a decent translation, is really a blessing to us. When we think that, well, I don't have to learn Hebrew. And I'm just letting you know, Hebrew is not fun to learn. <laughs> uh, we don't have to learn Greek. 
right? We can all say, well, it's all Greek to me, but I can read the Bible in English. What a beautiful thing and to think that, that we have good, solid translations. Are they perfect? No. No translation is, is ever perfect. It's why we need to educate our ministers in the languages. But here's what we do know. 2 Timothy chapter 3, you've heard me quote this a hundred times. All Scripture is, it's one of my favorite Greek words, Theopneustos, one word, God breathed. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And what? Well, it's breathed out by God, and because it's breathed out by God, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. And I want to leave you with that. We're, we're, we're going to not get to that last point on our, our handout today. But I want to leave you with this truth. Is that because God's Word is given to us to reveal Himself and to reveal His will, we have everything that we need to live in godliness to the Lord. We have everything that we need. We don't need more revelation we don't need special words from heaven. We don't need any kind of, of, of new prophets or new angels in the wilderness or any of this thing. We have every single thing that we need to know God, to know who He is, to know what He says, to know what He commands, to know what He desires from us. All of this we have in the Word of God. We are indeed a blessed people. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not written by merely by the imaginations or the manipulations of men, but that it is breathed out by you as your Holy Spirit carried along those who wrote. And we thank you that it is trustworthy and true. And we thank you that even today that we can assemble across the street uh, in worship and that we can read your word and sing your word and the word may be preached and all of this because it is true and it is trustworthy. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves and you have not left us as beautiful as creation is and as much as it testifies to your glory that you have not left us alone but that you have revealed your gospel to us in your word. We pray today that you'd prepare our hearts and minds for worship and for receiving the sacrament of the supper, Lord's Supper today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.